right, so good evening. We have been doing a series on the five faculties and continue with that tonight. So um, just as a review, the five spiritual faculties are faith, energy, mindfulness, <laughs> concentration, and wisdom. And the focus on the, the talks have been the way that they relate to each other, so the transitions from one to the next. And we had gotten up to talking about concentration last time, so I'll um, maybe just review that a bit, and then we'll see how that transitions into wisdom. So one thing about these five faculties is that uh, they're qualities of mind that we use when learning a skill. I've mentioned this before. And then the question is, what would we apply our skill to? You know, what is it that we're developing all this stuff for? And so there's a nice um, simile in the suttas that actually... Um, analogizes concentration to uh, learning a skill, in this case, uh, archery. <laughs> so it says, suppose that an archer or archer's apprentice were to practice on a straw man or mound of clay so that after a while he would become able to shoot long distances, to fire accurate shots in rapid succession, and to pierce great masses. In the same way, there is the case where a practitioner enters and remains in the first jhana, and so forth, and it goes on through the other jhanas. So it's an interesting analogy, because there's this sense, you know, I don't know what you think about the archery example, but there's this sense of uh, training the mind to do a specific thing. And that's, um, that's how it is with the jhanas, actually which are one specific form of concentration. It's not that you uh, need to go that far, at least initially. But this, there's a sense that these, um, in the original teachings, these concentration states are specific states of mind that somehow it's just been found that the mind can, they're like little stable um, energy pockets. You know, like the mind could rest there, like if you imagine sort of a bumpy terrain there, minimums in that. And it was known actually before the Buddha that there were such states that the mind could find and then go to another one and another one. He was even trained in the jhanas before his awakening by other spiritual teachers of his time who were not fully awake. But it's, um, it's like learning a skill. So, in the same way, developing these five faculties, all of which are needed to get up to concentration, we're learning this skill, and what we do with it is to see things as they are. That's kind of the, the aim. But there are other aims, I guess, that could come about, um, which we'll get to. I just want to review the quote that I said last time from Tan Jeff, who says, 
this is the best that the conditioned world gets, which is really true of the jhanas. They're wonderful states, very beautiful states of mind, and they're created. Uh, there's uh, a deliberate act of intention uh, to get there. It, it may feel like at some point there isn't so much intention, like they're just acting on their own, but there is still the conditioning uh, creation process going on, even if it's not being done uh, by an act of will. So there are uh, a lot of teachings about what you can do with concentration. And these are kind of interesting. The first is happiness here and now, which I like. Actually, concentration states are very happy. And, and when they say here and now, they mean while you're in concentration. And so it's actually a wonderful way to decondition the mind from all kinds of depressive and negative states is to abide in something that's so bright and happy. However, it doesn't last. After we get out of the concentration, we're susceptible to all the um, habits of the mind that were there before. Another thing that can be done, actually, with concentration is that you can um, develop power in the world. So a concentrated mind is very effective for uh, doing your work, for influencing other people. I mention this only as by way of saying this should not be the aim. It's not uh, necessarily ethical. And this is why I believe in the Eightfold Path that the ethical steps come before the mental development steps. It's very important. First of all, there, it's necessary that you be acting well in order that you'll be able to achieve concentration. But a subtler layer of that is you really should have a strong ethical sense before developing the power of the mind. Because people have used it, have misused it in various ways. There are also various ordinary powers that can be developed uh, through concentration. Things like the divine eye, the divine ear. They may not sound very ordinary, but they're considered ordinary because they're not... Um, part of the awakened mind. And this is the ability to see or hear beyond our normal senses. Um, and this definitely doesn't sound ordinary, but it's possible to see past lives through the development of concentration, if, you, if that's part of your worldview, and to comprehend karma and rebirth. So these things become possible when the mind has this penetrative seeing power. And similarly, uh, these are not considered in the Buddhist tradition, very useful aims to aim for. In the Vinaya, which is the code of conduct for monastics, for Buddhist monastics, it's forbidden to display these powers because people at the time of the Buddha would do them to kind of influence other people and to make their livelihood and to, I don't know, um, various other things. And it just wasn't very, you know, uh, wasn't what the Buddha was trying to put into the world. So I don't say these things because I think you're all going to go out and do that, but um, I do say them because we don't talk about them very often in our culture. Um, I think we have a very poor view of the power of the mind. You know, we think it's good. We think meditation is good for relaxation and stress reduction. Um, it was known centuries, millennia ago, <laughs> that the mind has tremendous power. And people used to develop that. Of course, that had its own problems. Um, 
But I think there's a lot more potential in us than we appreciate sometimes. And then the final use of concentration is for liberative insight. And that's what we develop on this path. That's the aim. It's to free the mind. So to free the mind from its tendency to suffer and therefore to create suffering for others also. And so this last one provides the transition to wisdom. Only, only liberative insight will free us from completely from suffering. Of course, the other things are partial freedoms, temporary freedoms, and can, can reduce um, the stresses that we feel in our lives. Certainly a mind that's developed concentration will be more steady in the world. You'll have a lot more equanimity going through life. So that's all good. But um, wisdom is required to really penetrate into the uh, deeper roots of the mind where we're creating all the difficulties for ourselves and others. So seeing clearly, and that's the point of a steady mind, is to see clearly. And there's, um, you know, what are the qualities of wisdom that can come forth from concentration? There's this uh, book in the Pali Canon called the Melinda Panha, which are the questions of King Melinda, who was a uh, Greek king in Western understanding. His, it was probably King Menander, um, but he was called Melinda in, this, in these uh, texts. And he somehow met a Buddhist monk and asked him a bunch of questions, and it's recorded in this book of the questions of King Melinda. This monk must have had just the patience. I was going to say the patience of Job, but I don't know if that's appropriate for a Buddhist monk. Um, but he had a lot of patience because this king had a lot of really basic questions. And he asked him again and again, what is the quality of such and such? And, you know, name your any Buddhist term that you've heard. He probably asked Nagasena that. And then Nagasena would say, well, it has this quality. And he would say, give me an example. So Nagasena would give him an example. And sometimes he'd be satisfied with that. And sometimes he would say, give me another example. <laughs> give me another example. So Nagasena came up with lots and lots of nice images because King Melinda really needed that. So in this case, Melinda says, what are the quality, what are the key qualities of wisdom? And... Uh, Nagasena says, uh, one quality is cutting and the other quality is illumination. And in one of the texts, um, he zeroes in on the illumination and says, uh, give me an example of the illumination. And so Nagasena says, wisdom arising, your majesty, dispels the darkness of ignorance, produces the illumination of insight, brings forth the light of knowledge and makes manifest the noble truths. And further, the spiritual practitioner sees with complete understanding impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and corelessness. That's also emptiness or not self. That was how James Ireland translated it. So there's a lot in there. Um, that This quality of illumination is that well, we can really see when the mind is actually steady then we have this um, ability to see in a different way than we see normally. And it comes through some other visual channel. And in particular, the, the, the quote highlights some things that we see. 
what do we see? We see what are called the three characteristics, the three characteristics or the three perceptions. I think perceptions is better actually, um, which would be understanding impermanence, the fact that everything is in flux, understanding unsatisfactoriness because there's no ground, because everything is changing. Nothing can be perm- nothing in itself can be permanently satisfying. Things can be temporarily satisfying, but not forever. That's actually a very deep insight to understand that. And then also emptiness, you know, because everything is changing, nothing has an unchanging essence to it. They may not sound that um, deep on the surface, but they actually really are. And they, you know, why would that reduce suffering to see that? Especially why would it reduce suffering to see that everything is unsatisfactory? But it does, because then you stop. So much of suffering is about trying to get stuff that we think is going to make us happy. I need this, I need that, if, I, if only, if only I had this, or how about when I have this, then such and such will be true. Um, might be true for a little while, but things are going to change, right? So a lot of suffering is, there, there's a lot of suffering around the trying to get something that we think is going to satisfy us. And if we deeply understand that nothing is actually going to satisfy us, we drop all the suffering of that trying to get and that turns out to be huge, actually. So, in particular, we won't go into this teaching a lot, but um, we see that the what are called the five aggregates have these qualities. So the qualities that we usually identify with in our life, our body, our feelings, our perceptions, our views and intentions, and our consciousness, even the the sense that we are the knower of things. Uh, Those are the qualities that we are most likely to identify with and cling to. Those are the things that we see in particular as being in constant, unsatisfactory, and uh, not related to our permanent essence. And then um, also in here is the sense of understanding conditionality. So especially these five aggregates, these different qualities of our being, we see them um, arising and passing, and we come to see not only that they come and go, or that they change and seem to come and go, but also we see the conditions that allow them to arise and pass. And that sounds like a subtle distinction, but it's, um, it's important because... If we think only in terms of arising and passing, just looking at impermanence, um, we might think that what is happening is that really existing objects are arising and passing. We, all, we inevitably will uh, the first time. So we, we think that something isn't there, and then it is there, and then it isn't there, and that it's a really existing object that's being created and then destroyed This is a subtle belief of the mind. But when we start, so basically we're alternating between eternalism and annihilationism. Um, We won't go into the philosophy. But seeing the conditions is more important. And, you know, how can this be practical? In our lives, we tend to think that things have come into our life and then they go out. You know, we have um, a certain car that we get, and then at some point we get in a crash and it goes away. Okay, that's true, 
But if we think in a bigger picture, there were the parts of the car that had to come together for it to become that car. And then those parts um, change or get melted down or turned into something else. It's, there's a lot more conservation of material and energy in the world than we tend to think about. And this is actually quite relaxing. If we think of things as being really existent and coming and going, then there's still a tendency that we need to get them. You know, which things am I going to have now and so forth. There's still a tendency to think in that way. Whereas if we see the conditions, um, it actually, be, we get a lot more control over our life because there's a sense that all we have to do is create the conditions for something to arise. We don't have to kind of get that thing and then hold on to it. It becomes a little softer. And similarly, then applying to the mind, which is, of course, more important. You know, if we sit down and we say, I talk, this is what I talked about last time, I want concentration. So I'm going to sit down and I'm going to concentrate my mind. That's what meditation is about. They told me to focus on the breath. Um, I don't have concentration now and I'm going to get it. But instead, if we think a little bit more softly, we might ask, what are the conditions for concentration to arise? Because it doesn't actually, the condition for concentration to arise is not that I bear down on my breath and want concentration to arise. That's not the condition for it. We talked about this last time. We have, have happiness and tranquility and awareness. And so then we might say, oh, well, maybe if I were to cultivate mindfulness. Never mind, forget about the concentration. I'll, I'll just cultivate mindfulness, which is the quality of simply returning. Every time my mind wanders away, I return. That's what the instruction says. Not thinking about the future. And tranquility, so, okay, so that tension in my shoulder, I should release that. And, of course, happiness, so not getting upset about this, allowing my mind to have some joy, to stay soft, to stay open, to be playful about how I come back to the breath. If we do that, we're actually cultivating the conditions for concentration to arise. So that's an example in meditation, but how about in our lives? Let's see, I would like my life to be less busy. Well... The quality of less busyness doesn't come about because I rant about how busy my life is every time somebody asks me to do something, or I make a zillion appointments and then cancel half of them because at the last moment I can't get there. Like, what are we actually doing to create the conditions to have a less busy life? Maybe we have to let go of one of our extracurricular activities. <coughs> Maybe we have to get up a little bit earlier to get that meditation in. Maybe we need to cut back on the hours that we work. If you really want a less busy life and you're working 50 hours a week at your job, maybe it's time to cut back to four days. You can't have everything in the material world, so maybe that means coming to some understanding about money. Maybe my, um, the amount of effort I put into getting this amount of money isn't worth it. And I could change my life to have 80% uh, of that money and do a little bit less. So these are, the, these are practical things that would change the conditions in our life to make it actually less busy. Or not checking our cell phone every five minutes. You know, every time we get the temptation to check the cell phone for another email, we could not do that. We could only check our phone three times a day. 
that would actually make our life less impinged by all the stuff coming in. So we have to, when we start thinking in terms of conditionality, we have more things to play with, and we have a much more practical idea of how to actually reduce suffering and bring about the things that we want. So this is, um, comes about, this is wisdom. <laughs> and it takes a little focus to be able to look at our lives clearly and see where are the things that I would need to change to get this to come about. So this is this illuminating quality of wisdom. And then what about the cutting quality? That's an interesting one. Sometimes people um, wonder about the, the sort of violent image. But of course, there are things that get cut. Um, the, one of the images of, of a mind that's not free is that it's bound up. It's actually fettered. And there are distinct fetters, which are you know, actual knots that are kind of wrapped around our body and mind. And as we meditate, we feel these. We can feel them in the mind, the pulling, the tightness, the mind and the body. These are fetters. And uh, an insight, a powerful insight, will actually feel like the cutting of a cord or the springing open of something that was bound. It literally has that feeling. And so what gets cut is the fetters along the way, the specific things that are binding the mind. And also um, what gets cut is our tendency to identify and to see experience as if it's happening to me, as if my life is an individual drama uh, of really existing events, etc. So we have this tendency to identify um, very strongly with our experience. Because, you know, of course, I don't know, I don't know who all of you are, but I am personally the center of the universe. Um, mm -hmm. My particular drama is the most important one. That's the one I live with 24-7. And all of you are kind of like, you know, minor roles in the, in the movie where I'm the star. Does anybody else have this feeling about their own life? <laughs> so, and I'm just, you know, this weird person that you came to listen to for 45 minutes tonight. I'm a minor being in your starring movie. So... How can this be with 6.5 or 8 or 7 billion people we have on the world? That's like, where would the center really be? So, you know, we start to loosen up a little bit on that. It's not that your life isn't important. It's very important. But um, it's part of something bigger. Okay, so let's move on to... Um, a little bit of an overview then uh, of how all these fit together. You know, we've done uh, the five faculties all the way up to the, the wisdom of, of freeing the mind piece by piece, seeing with insight, cutting the fetters, illuminating how we can reduce suffering. I want to step back now and have a sense of how these um, can form a path in and of themselves. So, one way to characterize um, how it is that we can accomplish something is, um, it was put together by another teacher and I, that I appreciate, is that there are three components. There's willingness, know-how, and capacity. And I like these. Um, what does this mean? So willingness is faith, actually. It's, um, or confidence, or trust, you know, it's the willingness to actually try to do something, like meditate, or get a job, or learn the piano, or whatever. 
but you know we're looking at the spiritual faculties so this would be about our meditation practice and sometimes we've forgotten that we actually have to have the willingness to do it and you know we, we may discover that we don't have sufficient willingness people will say oh I've, i want to meditate i'm going to go to a meditation class and i've got this plan that i'm going to do it every morning and then they discover that despite what they're saying at one level of their mind they don't actually do it <laughs> so at some level they're not willing it's not happening um, there's nothing nothing prevents you from meditating you could always get up a half hour earlier whatever it is so if it's not happening there's some part of you that's not willing and so we have to look at that sometimes this can be found by being very clear why we're practicing that's that's the question to ask is why am i doing this and then then from that the willingness will arise but that corresponds to this faculty of faith the the willingness to do it and then this second quality is called know-how so if you want to do something you do at some point have to know how to do it and know-how though is not just knowing how it's not intellectual knowledge know-how is like you fiddled around with it and tried it out you know people have know-how about fixing cars or they have know-how about um rowing a boat or doing mountain climbing something like that somebody who's an expert and so this is about effort this is where we we learn what to do by doing it and so we actually sit down and we actually meditate and we discover what that our mind is crazy and it's full of hindrances and it has all these um desires and aversions and it falls asleep and it gets overexcited all these things that happen in the mind and so know how in meditation is knowing how to um deal with the mind deal with this mind state that we have when we sit down how to settle the mind or if it's not going to settle at least how to be equanimous about that or if it does settle um what to do what can be developed with a settled mind you know what do you do if it actually is peaceful um what should i do with that so you know there are, there are these qualities that we need to know how to do so that relates i think to effort or energy the second one there's kind of a funny story about this um about this need for know how about from nasruddin who's the a character in tibetan buddhism nasruddin once worked as a ferryman One day he was taking a scholar across the river. "Have you ever studied grammar?" asked the scholar. Nasruddin shook his head, to which the scholar replied, "Too bad, you've wasted half your life." A little while later the wind rose and waves began to rock the boat. Nasruddin asked, "Have you learned how to swim?" The scholar shook his head. "Well, you've wasted all your life," said Nasruddin, "because we're sinking." <laughs> so you know it's not really about the of course the scholar is used right because it's not about intellectual know-how you don't need to read a book about meditation you need to meditate <laughs> so um and so we you know we learn by doing in this practice we learn by fiddling around with our minds but even if we um have some willingness and some facility there's still um going to be times when we sit down and the mind gets overpowered by depression or by anxiety or by overexcitement whatever it is and so there's we understand that even if we knew what we what to do there's still the capacity to do it you know um so 
we, we need in meditation, the capacity specifically refers to the capacity of attention. So that's what keeps the mind on track, is the ability to have more attention than what's happening. So if, you have a, if your attention level is here and the anxiety is here, you just get overpowered. But if the attention level is here and the anxiety is here, then you're just mindful of it. So the capacity corresponds to mindfulness. And so a lot of what we're doing, even though it's, it's so boring, when your mind wanders off, come back to the object. When your mind wanders off, remember your body. If you've been on a long excursion, reestablish the you know, sense of the body sitting and, and the breath. Boring, but what does it do? It builds capacity. Little by little, you're adding strength. You know, like doing little, you know, low weights. It's like boring, boring, but you're getting stronger. And so there's a sense that um, capacity corresponds to mindfulness. So willingness, know-how, and capacity, faith, energy, and mindfulness, those set the stage for the resultants, which are concentration and wisdom. Those emerge from those. As we said last time, the... The higher ones that you get to are more things where you cultivate the conditions for them and cultivating them directly. So many of our sort of difficulties and imbalances in practice uh, have to do with not understanding which of these three points needs attention. Do we need more willingness, more know-how, or more capacity? So if you're having challenges, this might be an interesting way to... Um, to kind of tune up what you're doing with the mind. So the faculties themselves are kind of a path. Um, the teachings about them are interesting. They use different kinds of verbs. F- for people who are just starting to meditate, the encouragement is to develop and cultivate the five faculties as much as possible. Why? Because these are the things that help us have develop the skill of meditation And then interestingly, there's a change. Like when a person has first seen the conditioned nature of the five aggregates, has first had some glimpse of the Dharma, then the verbs change. And we are asked, we're still asked to study the five faculties, but to see their arising, passing, gratification, danger, and escape. So that gets interesting. I mean, we can understand the arising and passing. It's one more thing in the mind to watch arising and passing, and to know the conditions for. Gratification we can understand because they're pleasant, actually. Having these five qualities, the mind feels strong and competent. But what about danger and escape? What do you think the danger of the faculties is? Yeah, there could be attachment to them. That's a good one. Also, their, um, their very conditioned nature means that we can't rely on them completely, right? They're like, it's like concentration. We discover that it's really good while it's there. And then, um, you know, afterwards we haven't really cut out. We haven't gotten to the roots of the, of the difficulties in the mind. So absolutely, we are not to assume that these are therefore not useful. Remember, the first step is to develop and cultivate them. But after we have some, basically a foothold in the, in the practice, which means typically someone who has attained the first stage of awakening, then we actually start um, making sure that we're not getting attached to them. And seeing their conditioned nature helps us 
um, go deeper into not identifying with them and allowing them to um, to just come and go as they do and serve their purpose through wisdom and not through our willful effort. So that's a little bit of a subtle point, but I wanted to just wanted to point that out um, in order to point out that the faculties themselves, as part of the path, undergo development. Sometimes this is I'm trying to continually undermine our sense that everything that we talk about is a, a really existing thing that is just one thing. It's not true. Everything from mindfulness to faith to concentration are things that are not the same the first moment you sit down as later on the path. They change along the way because they're conditioned and because they're part of the path. The path is to be developed. So I hope what this does is it helps you not get attached to one idea of what things are. Oh yeah, mindfulness, I know what that is. It feels like this in my mind. Sit down and establish that. You could do that for 20 years, but um, it would be good if along the way you, you allowed that mindfulness could develop and be something different after, you know, 10 years or so. <laughs> okay, so, so then I, I found this quote from um, Gil Fronstall's essay in the spring 2018 newsletter that he writes. Um, so it's pretty recent. And it was, a, it was a lovely article about um, Dharma practice and how the Dharma comes to be a support in our life. You know, we, of course, probably everybody has found in some way the Dharma is a support in their life, but he talks about it in a very deep way um, and gives a very nice analogy. And I noticed that in what he wrote, all the faculties appear. <laughs> so um, I pulled it out. So I'll read it first and then we'll point out the faculties. So he says... The way the Dharma arises can be compared to floating in fresh water. When we float, we may say that the water supports us, but in fact, the water alone is not sufficient to keep us from drowning. If we don't know how to float, and we thrash around in fear or only relax and trust, the water won't hold us up. Floating is a learned skill that depends on our having both the intention to float and the skill to do it. The dynamic interplay of the water, our body, intention, and skill creates the floating. As a support for our lives, the Dharma is like the floating. Just as part of the skill of floating is relaxing and letting go of activities that interfere with floating, so too the skill that allows the Dharma to arise and support us includes letting go of what undermines that support. But the Dharma is not found simply by letting go any more than floating safely in water simply requires relaxing. Certain skills and intentions need to be present for the Dharma to appear and to function. It is through the way we live that the Dharma can have a role in our lives. Okay, so that's interesting, right? And that's actually a very deep exposition of how the Dharma works in her life, said in simple languages. But look what it says. So the way the Dharma arises can be compared to floating in fresh water. Uh, when we float, we may say that the water supports us, but in fact the water alone is not sufficient to keep us from drowning. If we don't know how to float, so there's know-how, that's either energy or wisdom, and we thrash around in fear, or if we only relax and trust, that is if we only have faith, the water won't hold us up. Faith alone is not sufficient to liberate us or for our life to work through the Dharma. We have to actually do something. Sorry to say. Mm -hmm. That would be meditation. 
but faith is very useful. So floating is a learned skill. The dynamic interplay of the water, our bodies, intention, and skill creates the floating. That's concentration or collectedness. We have our mind gathered around this idea of floating, this analogy of floating. Um, and we bring together the, the water, our body, our mind, through the intention, and our skills. So this is all the factors that come together to create a mind that has uh, one collectedness to it. It's gathered around a particular purpose. Okay, so as a support for our lives, the Dharma is like the floating. It goes on, certain skills and intentions, I'm putting those under energy, need to be present for the Dharma to appear and function. It is through the way we live that the Dharma can have a role in our lives. So to do all of this, we would definitely need mindfulness. We need to pay attention to all those things. So I've named all of them, wisdom, faith, concentration, energy, and mindfulness, as part of this little blurb. And of course, it makes sense that they would be in there because he talks about it as a skill, right? Using the Dharma, finding the Dharma as a skill. So of course, the skills, um, we've been talking about the whole time, these faculties are the way we learn a skill. They should be present in that. So it's interesting. Can we start to see this in our lives, even in small ways? You know, even if we don't feel like we're just living in the floating water of the Dharma, um, there is can be an intuitive knowing that comes through practice of how or when to do things in order to find the support. You know, we may get an intuition, you know, now is a time to, um, to go on retreat. You know, sometimes people can be in the practice for years and years and they've, you know, they've heard about retreats. We talk about, we have retreats in the Sangha every year and they've heard about them, but they sort of say, oh, yeah, blah, blah, blah. And then one year they suddenly say, retreat. That's a great idea. Well, where did that come from? You know, it's some intuition that we get. And usually that's that person was right for retreat at that moment. Um, or they've been practicing for a while and they suddenly say, I wonder where all this comes from. I keep hearing these sutta quotes in Dharma talks. But what are the suttas? And so then they decide, oh, I'm going to read. I'm going to actually go to the source and learn some of these wisdom texts. And usually it's the right time for that to happen. And, you know, in our life, it can happen too. We can say, you know, this is the time to change my job, or this is the time to um, move so I can be closer to my elderly mother. You know, I've been traveling enough to go see her. Now is the time. It just feels right. And sure enough, you know, something happens or she dies within a year or something. And we're so glad that we did that. So learning to trust some of these intuitions that come in our lives can be really helpful and can lead. It doesn't make all the problems in our life go away. That's um, not part of the deal here, but we can, um, we can learn to be more skillful in how we interact with them. And that's greatly reduces the suffering right from the beginning, you know, right from the beginning, we don't have to have full enlightenment to be reducing our suffering piece by piece. We, um, we learn to float or we learn the skill Take your pick of the images. Okay. So I think that'll wrap up the five faculties for us. Are there any comments, questions? Yeah. Question about, um, actually, you mentioned 
you have time in these faculties, many of them are here in any of this. So concentration of mindfulness or factors of awakening and these uh, um, uh, and path factors and this list. And what's the best way? Because you know, concentration is concentration. So what does it mean? Is it are we supposed to be looking at it as a different lens in the focus? I see. So you're asking if it's a different thing. And yeah, sometimes it's highlighting different aspects of it. Um, so concentration, so you could ask, is concentration as a faculty different from concentration as a path factor? Um, yeah, probably. Yeah, the concentration that we bring to... Um, that we bring to learning a skill. So the concentration, the the samadhi that develops around meditation practice can be the way that we evaluate our own practice and decide, um, oh, this is what I need to do here, this is what I need to do there. We have um, a sense then of bringing our practice together so that we're um, bringing the mind fully to to the practice. It has a different aspect to it. It has a little bit of an evaluative aspect, I think, when it's used as a skill. Whereas um, as a path factor, it has a different flavor to it. It has the flavor of um, uh, actually helping the mind to um, I want to say advance on the path, but that makes it too circular sounding. To me, they have slightly different flavors to them, and I'm not I'm not finding the words to describe them very well right now. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah. It's interesting to yeah what I the way I relate to the the lists and is that sometimes um, I'll, I'll know what a certain factor feels like a little bit like I know basically what Samadhi feels like it's a gathering of the mind um, but depending on the context it does feel a little bit different um, I did have a I had an, a case one time okay maybe this is an example where I was on a retreat and I um, spontaneously had a an aspiration arise in my mind and it was actually while I was I'd been out doing walking meditation and I walked into the meditation hall and while I was walking to my cushion this um, aspiration arose for a way to develop something in my practice I, it's something that I wanted to see it's like oh that's that's really important to me right now and I thought that's interesting something came together in my mind it felt felt heart opening it felt important and I sat down on the cushion and um, my mind immediately went to um, a sense of uh, direction toward that and as I sat for the 45 minutes the five faculties unfolded it was very interesting so I watched each one of them appear in my mind and as I could recognize that they had this particular flavor and so I understood, oh, this is something that this aspiration is going to be a skill that gets, is going to develop through skill. Um, I don't know why that happened. It was just a spontaneous occurrence. And to me, that's different than um, when I sit down to develop, to cultivate concentration. If I decide, oh, this is, this is going to be a sit that's about developing concentration, that could be done in isolation. That's probably more the path factor. You know, we're strengthening that particular aspect of mental development. Yeah. Kitty. Um, so um, 
it, the five is sort of like this advanced way of looking at the five factors that you mentioned. Um, so I remember the last two were danger and um, danger and escape because I focus on arising, passing, gratification, danger, and escape. Okay. So you do talk about escape a lot, and it seems like my words is even temporary. But it could have like a bit of a two-edged sword kind of thing. So escape, I mean, you have to say that what comes to my mind is um, like escape, like you're not, you know, you're escaping from life and you're not really facing things. But it also could have yeah, that's what escape always refers to. It refers to um, uh, understand to unhooking the mind from something. So the word is nisarana. Yeah, it always it, it, gratification, danger, and escape is a triad that appears in a lot of things. You're supposed to see that related to the five aggregates, the five faculties, the you know many many things. We're supposed to see the gratification, danger, and escape of, and that always refers to understanding them with wisdom. So we understand what's good about this. We understand the drawbacks, and when we see that there are both positive aspects and drawbacks. The unenlightened mind says, well, I'm just going to go for the positive ones and, and avoid the drawbacks. But the mind of wisdom realizes that they, they come together. They're actually two sides of the same hand. They're not two different hands. And so the escape is to let go of that and see it, see through it with wisdom so that it can no longer hook us into only wanting the gratification side. Yeah. Well, danger also be like recognizing, um, well, just the sort of the energy of danger, and then also um, the recognition of danger, not escaping. Okay, yeah, so, so the actual, the danger itself, as well as the danger posed by not having an not having an enlightened mind yeah I think there's implications of both of those that the mind realizes I mean this is part of suffering of unsatisfactoriness and danger is a strong word I it's one of those words like suffering where I kind of cringe at the translation sometimes because we're supposed to see the danger even of you know deep jhana states and stuff which are completely wholesome and will not harm the mind at all but they're just not freedom and so there's a little bit of suffering in that if you will, a little bit of dukkha, uh, a little bit of stress, basically, yeah. You spoke about three, I think there were states, and one of them I can remember is emptiness. And if we could Adopt all, adopt all of those, that would kind of be an end of suffering? If we could really, these are the three perceptions that we cultivate in the mind of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and emptiness. And it's not that those are like the, the only qualities that things actually have and everything else is diluted. It's more like if we just pay more attention to those aspects of things, that will help to undermine our tendency to cling and crave and, and suffer for things. 
So we we, we're basically retraining our perception, which normally sees things as solid objects that can be mine and that I have to, that I like or dislike and want and don't want. And all of that is the realm of, of suffering. It's the, the rat, the, the rat wheel that we run on. And so we retrain ourselves to say, well, this um, is impermanent. It's actually even conditioned, but it's, you know, it's, it, and that helps undermine my tendency to get upset that when I lose it or drop it or whatever, it's like, all right, well, you know, had to go at some point. And, you know, not to believe that my ultimate happiness depends on this water bottle and also to see the emptiness starts to get to the conditioned nature, um, to see that it's not really mine. Yeah. Yeah. So we... And it's, that sounds kind of heavy and philosophical. I know you weren't pointing toward that necessarily, but it's actually very, very simple. I mean, you just look at something and you literally think in your mind, this is not mine. And then you go on with your day. But if you do that small moments all day, it really adds up. Or, you know, just watch the way to sit on a park bench and watch people go by what I can see, what, I, what is in my visual field is impermanent. It keeps changing. I'm not going to be able to see this forever. The light changes. Um, the wind changes. The temperature changes. Uh, just cultivate that for 15 minutes at lunch and then go on with your day normally. And over time, it has a big impact on the mind. It's very simple, actually. These are very practical instructions. They just have fancy words. <laughs>